Hello, and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Kate Moody, Strategy Director at LearnFS, and this week we're bringing you a very special rewind show from the Fintech Insider archives, hosted by Benjamin Ensor and joined by some very special guests from Alica Bank, Anthemis, and this week in Fintech, the show asks the question, how should we measure success in Fintech? We find ourselves in a period where down rounds are becoming more and more of a norm, valuations are tumbling, and we're seeing fintechs either get bought out entirely or sadly have to shut their doors. In this show, we're examining whether valuation and customer numbers are the best measure of success for fintech. Should we be paying more attention to profitability or the problems they're solving for their home markets? Or are there even success metrics we haven't even thought of? This is as highly relevant discussion now as it was almost a year ago when we first had it, perhaps even more so. I'll let you hear from Benjamin and his guests very shortly after these brief messages. Don't go anywhere. This is Fintech Insider After Dark. We are breaking out of the studio and bringing it to the community. It's a live recording of the Fintech Insider podcast featuring your favorite hosts and big name guests. Well, thank you very much for having me back. Join us and become a certified Fintech Insider. Whether it's beers in London or pizza in New York, catch up with Fintech geeks and make new friends across the financial services ecosystem. This is packed out, right? standing yeah. moment. We are bringing After Dark to the Village Underground in London on the 20th of September. Click the link in the podcast description or visit 11fs.com slash afterdark. Thank you very much for joining us, everybody. Good night. Hello, it's Benjamin here, Director of Research and Strategy at 11fs. Earlier this year, we published Building the Future of Home Buying, a report that calls out financial services for making the biggest, most significant purchase of most people's lives way more difficult than it needs to be. Well, fast forward to today and things haven't changed. Mortgage offerings are more important now than they have ever been, with sky-high interest rates in many countries forcing home buyers to shop around. We've got clients asking us how to move quickly to fix the problem and get a game-changing product to market. Want to know the secret? Step one, download the report at 11fs.com slash homebuying. Step two, get in touch at 11fs.com slash ventures. Speak soon. Let's get started. As always, I'm joined by a panel of insightful guests who can shed some light on this really interesting topic. First of all, we have a welcome return to Fintech Insider for Richard Davies, CEO of Alica Bank. Welcome back to the show, Richard. Can you reintroduce our audience to both you and your bank, please? Sure, thanks, Benjamin. Great to be back on the show. So yeah, I'm the CEO of Alica Bank. We are exclusively focused on what we call established business banking. So these are the segment of customers that sit awkwardly between the, the millions of consumers and, and micro businesses and the, the 10,000 or so large corporates in the UK. So it could be 10, 50, 100 staff businesses that have been left behind by both fintech and the larger banks. So that's what Alica does, full service, lending, savings, current accounts, um, and on a mission to change that segment for the better. Thank you. Welcome back. And we also have a welcome return to Fintech Insider for Katie Palanchar, Managing Director and Global Head of Venture Studio at Anthemis. Welcome back, Katie. Similarly, could you give our listeners a reminder of you and uh, your role at Anthemis, please? 
Sure. So Anthemis Group is a global fintech and an embedded finance venture capital firm and full stack investment platform. We're investing all the way from pre-seed venture studio through growth markets. Um, I specifically lead the venture studio strategy, which also includes the Female Innovators Lab Fund, an early stage uh, investment fund focused on female founders in fintech. We're um, anchored by Barclays and also backed by Aviva. Excellent. Thank you. And we have a third guest who is also making a very welcome return, uh, Nick Melanovich, editor of This Week in Fintech. Great to have you here again, Nick. Can you uh, remind our audience about you and This Week in Fintech? Definitely. Thanks for having me back, Benjamin, and uh, to the 11FS team too. And it's good to see a few familiar faces on this call. Um, so This Week in Fintech is a fintech newsletter and podcast series uh, an event series uh, where we have uh, 45,000 weekly readers, presence on a few continents, and uh, are entirely focused on breaking and dissecting the latest fintech news. And then also investing at the Fintech Fund, which is uh, an early stage venture fund, uh, investing in pre-seed and seed stage fintech founders alongside other great investors like Katie over at Anthemis. Fantastic. Well, thank you all so much for joining me today. It's great to have the three of you on the show. So let's dive in. And let's start by looking at how the industry looks at success today. And I think the obvious place to start is VC funding, which is uh, or venture capital funding, which has often been trumpeted as, as the measure of success. Um, to what extent is that a marker of success? And does that change as firms mature? Katie, I think I'm going to start with you as the venture capitalist in the room. Is venture capital funding an appropriate measure of success? Sure. So I think the industry has obviously taken off, shifted over the past 20, 10, five years. And I think what it's created is everyone now is at the convergence of venture capital, right? So we have investors, we have the operators, we have financial institutions, but we also have politics. We have Hollywood, right? Everyone is dipping their toes into VC or tangentially exposed in some way and just in the products that they're using in the day to day. And I think that what that shift has caused is it's this convergence of a cultural phenomenon. And when that happens, I think it's a big validation in the media in because so many people are involved now, right? And I, I'd like to see a little bit more shift away from that, but it's always sexy stories, right? It's interesting. More people can right, uh, really understand this industry now more than ever. And I think it really should be more of a marker of you have the capital and having the capital is the opportunity to go and build, right? And I think we've seen a lot of, well, that's the check bar, checkbox, excuse me, it must be a great idea because people have validated it with great track records. And yes, I think that's that's definitely interesting, but rather focusing on the capital and the opportunity that you now have to build should really be the focus going forward. Richard, what what's your perspective on sort of companies using funding or as they mature, you know, maybe starting to use more of their sort of market capitalization and so on as a metric? Is 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 funding raised a is, is it a good metric? It's not a bad metric. I think I'd agree with Katie in terms of it, it gives you the opportunity to to build. And it's, it's certainly rare to create a very large, successful company without material capital being raised. I mean, I think particularly in financial services where 
nothing is that capital light, right? I mean, yes, you've got the odd social media site that was started historically with just 10 people bootstrapped, etc. But most financial services, so, so payments businesses, there's generally some working capital involved where, uh, let's say, cl- classic payments businesses, um, shortcutting some of the, the payment rails uh, in terms of speed uh, and builds working capital by uh, as it grows from that, or if, if you're lending, you have, you have capital against the lending. So, yeah, I, I think most financial services businesses, you, you do need serious capital if you're going to be seriously big. Um, so it certainly differentiates those that could be serious players from those that, that can't just by virtue of the capital. But clearly, we, we've equally seen lots of people burn hundreds of millions of dollars of capital and achieve very little. So it's um, it's the opportunity rather than the success itself. So what about what about the valuations that are then implied by those um, those venture capital rounds? You know, particularly as we get to sort of Series B, Series C um, fundraisers, and you can extrapolate, you know, the valuations or the apparent valuations of those companies based on the new investment. Um, Nick, do you think those valuations are a useful metric? I mean, you know, obviously there's a little bit of fashion in fintech. You know, there are there are ideas that are very much the sort of flavor of the year um, and ideas that are maybe a little bit early still or a little bit late. Um, do you think valuations is a, is a useful metric? Um, well, I, I guess the question is, you know, is it useful in the context of, of which exercise? Um, generally, I think valuations, you know, you can't view them in a vacuum. You have to contextualize them in the valuation environment that you're talking about um, at the time that that, value, that that mark was made. Um, and so if you've been investing in fintech for the last, let, let's say if you've been investing in fintech for four years or more, then you've noticed that 2019 looked very different from 2020 and 2021 where uh, valuations shot up really for all tech categories, but fintech more so than almost any other category except for crypto. Um, and over the last year, 2022, um, you've seen a little bit of a retrace and a return to normalcy. Um, and it's unclear if we're at the kind of steady state now or if there's a little bit of a fall left. But across all stages, you've seen valuations compress over the last year. And so if you're looking at valuation um, you really have to contextualize it against the cohort of other companies and how they're being valued at the same time to understand what the signal is there. Um, but if I'm thinking about valuation as a proxy for success, I, I don't know, maybe I'm by myself here, but I don't think fundraising and valuation are necessarily great proxies for understanding how successful a company or a fintech product is. When I think about success metrics, I normally think about the metrics that a company would communicate in their quarterly and annual OKRs. Um, and when I saw this prompt, my mind immediately went to, you know, user growth numbers, uh, revenue numbers, uh, payback periods, LTV uh, to CAC ratios. Um, and then, you know, even less kind of financial metrics like number of new products launched um, and customer affinity and, and you know, media buzz. Um, I think when you have a fundraise and you have a company going out and putting out a media press release saying we're now a unicorn and we raised over a hundred million dollars in this latest round. Um, you can infer a little bit from that signal. It should be a, a uh, okay proxy um, for saying somebody's done the math here and somebody's done the diligence and this company must be doing something right because they're able to raise that much at that valuation. Um, but as Katie mentioned, there's been a lot of new interest um, in VC as an asset class and that's brought a lot of new investors in and, there's an argument to be made that the 
value of valuation and total amount fundraised as a signal has gone down because of all the new entrants to the market. Um, and so I think if you're really looking for success metrics in fintech these days, you need to look um, away from venture funding and, and find more kind of firm specific metrics to look at. So you made a number of really, really insightful points there, Nick. And one of the ones I really like is, is your, your implicit point that the right metric partly depends on who you are and you know what you're using the, the 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 metric for. So I think we've probably all agreed that if you are an investor, you know the valuation is quite an interesting metric, and particularly if you're an investor that's looking to exit that business at some point down the road. Um, Katie, you know, before we come on to the metrics that the managers of the business should be using, valuation presumably is a, quite a useful metric for you as investors because at some point you're thinking about, okay, at some point we want to exit this business that we have funded and made successful. So presumably it remains important to you as a metric over time, but I'm sure it's not the only thing you look at by any means. Sure. And I mean, I also think in, in some ways the the venture capital industry can be looked at as a little bit contradictory, right? Because you know, a higher, um, you know, IRR, uh, you know, MOIC in, in your portfolio helps you raise more money, right? And then continue to invest in more companies, capitalize your companies, et cetera. And so, you know, it can kind of get into a little bit of a, of a vicious cycle where those valuations are, are helpful, but are they really reflection of what's happening within the company, right? Um, and so I think to Nick's point of like looking at things in a vacuum, it's it's really hard. And I, I think the other thing in that, that's why I think fintech is also kind of an outlier in this where you have like traditional consumer apps or, or CPGs, all of those points that Nick listed around LTV and, and CAC and daily active users. I think the tricky part is, is that we expect some type of playbook where, you know, first you have so many daily active users, then you try to get that CAC down, right? But it actually happens in so many different orders for different types of businesses. And if we had the exact playbook to do that, then, you know, we'd all have figured this all out and just be talking about how great we all are. Right. But I think that's something also, as you kind of look at valuation and when some of these metrics can be reflected and in what order it really varies across business by business. And so I think that should also be reflected in valuations at time. And I would also say that VCs and can look across their portfolio, and I would say some of their highest valued assets companies are probably ones that also keep them up at night, right? So it's not just a slam dunk if it's a great valuation, we're seeing growth. What do they say with, with, um, uh, with power comes a lot of responsibility? Um, and so I think that's kind of another approach as we look as we move into this market is something that venture investors are going to have to really look at um, as they grow their portfolio and their overall portfolio construction. And I think also that's something that founders can better educate themselves on of what VCs are trying to achieve with these valuations across their entire portfolio as well. Thank you. Richard, so Katie's just nicely summarized the the, the, the investor's perspective. Could you um, maybe give us a bit of a perspective from a sort of a founder or a chief executive? What should um, what should the the managers of the business be thinking about, particularly perhaps at the early stages? What are the kinds of metrics that you think early stage fintechs should be focusing on? And I actually think founder is quite different to say CEO or C suite, where you're not being the founder. Um, because founder, right, you're, you're mm. counting down from 100% ownership. So I think valuation matters a hell of a lot to you there, right? Uh, because 
And if you end up giving away 75% of the company in the first two rounds, um, you're never getting that back. Um, so you're going to end up with a very small percentage by Series E. Um, the uh, corollary to that, right, clearly is good investors, the right amount of capital can can make a business successful, right? So if you're just after valuation and you're not valuing the investor and the, the capital, then that's... Um, that could be foolish as well. I mean, listen, I think um, typically C-suite, right, have more of a sort of growth shares type um, incentive structure, right, where you're really incentivized about where do you get to at exit as opposed to uh, the, the interim valuations, uh, which I personally think is healthier because ultimately all this paper money, it, it doesn't exist. Uh, it's just numbers in spreadsheets, yeah. right? So um, we saw that in 2021, right, where most of those companies that raised very high numbers, those numbers are at best half that right now. Some of them are a tenth of that. And in FTX's case, it's zero. So um, there's, yeah, like there was a massive bubble in 2021 in particular, which has popped big time. Uh, not just fintech, but, but fintech is probably the peak of that bubble. Um, and ultimately, people are now valuing, from an investor point of view, the ability to deliver actual profits at exit that can, using fairly traditional valuation metrics, actually deliver um, a sort of positive exit for investors. So I, I think the world's changed from a sort of pure customer-based, growth-based valuation method to uh, one where you need to be able to see that um, income streams coming through that at exit will actually give the sort of traditional metrics, right, the return on equity, the price to earnings, et cetera, that ultimately is actually how companies get valued uh, in public markets. So, yeah, there was this kind of weird phase for 18 months. That's, that's, that's gone. I think we've returned to normalcy. Um, interest rates being up has, has certainly hurt as well for, for tech stocks because you, you value the future less with a high, higher interest rate. So, yeah, um, but sorry, I'm rambling a bit. But, um, yeah, founders versus C-suite, I think, can be different incentives. Certainly founders valuation matters a lot because uh, it's how much of the company you give away. Yeah, no, that's that's a that's a really really good point, and thank you for catching that. Um, you've you've you made a bunch of interesting points there, and, and Nick, I want to come back to you as, as to start thinking about you know what are some of the measures of success we might be overlooking. You mentioned some yourself, Nick, like customer acquisition costs, uh, customer lifetime value. Uh, Richard made made some really interesting points, you know, price earnings and and so on. Um, what are there are there metrics that you think fintechs are frequently overlooking you also talked about you know marketing and media buzz um are there are there metrics you think we should be paying a bit more attention to uh, you know fraud rates um <laughs> uh, anything spring to mind um you know I, I think katie had a good point that um when she was talking about kind of there's no one playbook for fintech that you have fintech means a lot of things in terms of the underlying product and the underlying category now Fintech has exploded as a category over the last decade, such that you have really rich ecosystems and specific verticals now of products. You have an entire banking as a service ecosystem. You have an entire consumer fintech ecosystem. And that consumer ecosystem is broken down into um, savings, banking, lending, you know, credit, home ownerships, um, you know, student financial services. And the reason I bring all that up is to say, uh, I think you are going to have a lot of heterogeneity in which metrics are relevant to each company based on their product and their user set. And having worked at two very early stage fintech companies and then at a very late stage one at Google Pay, uh, I think founders generally have a very good sense of what the key drivers are for success for their business. These will change over time, but I think 
for the most part, OKRs are a well-structured process and people understand kind of what the key drivers of success are. If you step back though, and look at FinTech as a general category though, and say, okay, what signals success um, for FinTech writ large? In my mind, one metric that we probably don't talk about enough is market share one over from traditional financial services. Um, when I think about like where fintech exists, I kind of think of it as being on a continuum, and you have you know traditional financial services on one side of the end of that spectrum, and then on the other side, you know, it's something more uh, exotic like decentralized finance. And fintech is is you know the middle section there. Um, and so when I think about kind of where we're going, you know, ten years, fifteen years, a hundred years into the future. What I'd want to see is that fintech continues to win over more and more market share from traditional financial services providers. Um, so, you know, companies like Alka Bank can win over customers from traditional um, legacy banks, or companies like Unit, which provides banking as a service, is winning over business from the FISs and five services of the world that provided core banking traditionally. Um, that's one that I it's it's really hard to quantify. You'd probably need like a McKinsey or an 11FS to be able to put together a comprehensive overview there. But I think over time, we really want to understand, um, are people signing up for fintech as a fad or to try a product out? Um, or are fintech companies writ large building enduring products that are really winning people over from financial services? Can I just build on that? Because I, I, I totally agree. Actually, I do think about kind of market share as being a key measure. But uh, really, so from a wider perspective as well, which is, listen, I, I think the segment I work in, right? is terribly underserved in the wider market. Um, so in the space that I work in in the UK, there's about £60 billion of, of lending done each year, so annual lending volumes. Um, listen, if I go to 10% of that, that's £6 billion a year. That's like bigger than any fintech lenders done in the world. That's really successful, right? But it's still only 10%. But I would kind of hope um, that I have wider impact that forces everyone to up their game in the wider industry, right? So you create greater societal impact, economic impact by forcing everyone in the industry up their game by having meaningful market share as opposed to just your market share alone, right? And I, I do think if you're like no market share, 1% market share, you're not really having meaningful impact, right? If you want to change the industry for better, you've got to have meaningful impact, meaningful share. And you look at that, you see that in consumer, right? With the Revolut or the Monzo and sort of the, the billions spent by the big banks in response to that to try and defend themselves desperately. So I think kind of, if you can have meaningful market share, it creates all sorts of benefits, both your own, but also for wider society via competition. And, and I would add on to that too. I'm not sure how you measure this either, but there's a lot of kind of wedges, um, you know, tricks and, and trades to acquire these users and how sustainable those are. Is it a business where you constantly have to come up with new wedges to acquire customers? Or is that wedge something that is completely sustainable, a way for you to acquire customers, right? So you like look at Cash App, right? Uh, their crypto offering is a big part of their revenue, a big part of acquiring customers. And so, again, not sure how to measure that, but kind of looking at something over time of, you know, is there a period of time where those things are sustainable and then you have to go to the next one? Or is it businesses, and I can think of some B2B businesses even in our early stage portfolio where they have strong wedges that I think will be sustainable over time, right? And, and I, I think those are some interesting things that we're going to hopefully have the opportunity to, to, to dig a bit more in as we get back to to kind of hard numbers, hard facts, hard OKRs. 
I think you're trying to say you think crypto is not a sustainable way of winning customers (laughs) (laughs) over the next couple of months. Sorry, Nick, go ahead. (laughs) I I just want to double down on both of those points because I think they're fantastic and actually need to be repeated. But there's market share and then there's market expansion. And I totally forgot to mention market expansion, but Katie and Richard both talked about the important dynamics. And the end of the day, fintech should not just be trying to win over a bigger piece of the pie from financial services, but to expand the size of the pie overall. Um, and I think when you look at um, products like Richard's focused on financial inclusion and getting financial services out to more customers, um, or when you look at uh, the work that Katie is doing on Anthibus's female uh, fund and getting more people into fintech um, from non-traditional backgrounds, um, we should spend a lot more time focused on broadening the pie. Um, and I think that that's really what a win could look like in addition to just winning up for market share. And you're, you're raising a couple of really interesting sort of industry-wide points there, Nick, because you, your first point was about, you know, measuring the shift from traditional financial services to fintech. Presumably at some point, you know, success is when you actually can't, that the traditional financial services firms have either disappeared or evolved into truly digital businesses so that a Barclays look so like Alica Bank and behave so like Alica Bank that you kind of forget that one of them has been around for a couple of hundred years and one of them hasn't. Um, but but your other point is even more interesting about you know enlarging the pie, encompassing more people in financial services. Does that necessarily mean increasing profits for the industry as a whole, though? Or does, there's an interesting question about does the profit pool shrink? Um, and and how important is profitability in this? We're talking about a number of metrics, a lot of which are really leading indicators of profitability. Isn't the ultimate metric here profitability? I'm going to throw that back to you, Richard, because you, you I believe you got to profitability um, earlier this year. Um, congratulations. <laughs> That's obviously quite a big deal, right, for any startup business getting to sustainable profitability, right? Yeah, it, it is, right? And I think sustainable is a word I'll come back to. So, yeah, we, we turned profitable in June. We've been profitable every month since and expect that to continue as we go forwards. Um, why does it matter? I mean, ultimately, it is that word sustainability, I think, uh, be it from a point of view of fundraising, be it from a point of view of customer trust. Um, after all, we, we bank businesses that do care if their bank is uh, sustainable financially. Um yeah, that 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 is a is a pretty important metric, right? That uh, yeah, I, I do think with this return to normality, um, with a few exceptions, um, businesses that just want to burn a pile of money to achieve massive sort of headline customer growth are going to struggle. Um, so yeah, I think profit's important, but purpose is equally important. So I think if you've just got a business that is about profit. Um, well, you should probably should have gone to work for Goldman Sachs or something, right? Um, like, I think people want to work in something that they care about and think is actually having some positive impact to society or the, or, or the economy as a whole. And that's certainly what drives me, right, around this this segment. It's it's a third of the, the jobs, it's a third of the UK economy, and I think is poorly served, which holds back um, uh, UK UK's overall economy, right, which is, is not good for anyone in these current difficult times. So, um, yeah, I, I think profit is kind of necessary, but not sufficient, would be my view. Katie, Nick and um, Richard have made really good points about financial inclusion and including more people into the fintech economy and, and you know expanding access to financial services and so on. 
are we as an industry measuring that purpose in any effective way? Are we, are we, have you seen good efforts to try and measure sort of financial inclusion or the, or the, you know, achievement of purpose by the industry? Um, or is that something that everyone's kind of struggling with a bit? I think we've seen a big shift over the past couple of years. I mean, I have been talking about this topic a lot. I started talking very vocally about it uh, about 11 years ago. And at the time it was like, don't talk about that. Don't bring that up. You'll never raise money. Um, and just, you know, kind of carry on. There's the investors, there's the founders, because I come from a founder and operator background as well. Um, I think where I kind of, um, it, it, it feels that some people's perception of this is, is box checking and that they're like, well, yes, we need to hire more people. We need to hire more women, more women on boards. And all these statistics are important. But we also need to look at how we're bringing more underrepresented groups, more women into fintech in, in just participating and using products. Right. And I think often we live in a bubble in that we think, oh, yes, fintech touches everyone. Well, it it actually really doesn't. And, you know, often we heard the past years, the underbanked, the underbanked. But we have, you know, so many fintech apps, so many opportunities right now for people to participate in the fintech ecosystem. But the products aren't necessarily built for them. And so that's why I think metrics like, well, how many, um, you know, what does the diversity of your team look like? Does the diversity of your board look like? Because it's those people will bring new perspectives to help build products, right? Which then can bring more people into the market. And as we know, more people participating in a market brings more value, brings more revenue, brings more profitability. We also have the statistics of how different um, founders, and this is the world I live in, female founders perform. So I see just like a massive market opportunity. And I get a little frustrated because if we look at how we're measuring fintech, we see these opportunities here, we see revenue and how that relates to female founders, exits, etc. I think we're missing a big part of, of potential as an investor, but also bringing more people into fintech, right? It's not just about hey, we, we see this as an investment opportunity, right? And then the network effects of that are going to be, be huge. Very well said. Okay, let's move on and look at how the goalposts and the metrics we use might move as fintech continues to grow and becomes more established. Katie has just given us a really good argument or a series of good arguments as to why we need to look at wider metrics to Richard's point about purpose what's the purpose of the industry beyond just making profits so what starts to become more important um katie you were talking a lot about inclusion and obviously that's a huge part of this we've also got some other challenges you know the climate crisis we've just had cop 27 clearly the climate crisis is just going to get worse over the next decade um will we see other metrics starting to come, become more important? Nick, I think I'm going to throw this one to you. Do you think we're going to see more pressure on startups, on venture capital firms, on established firms to do one or both of paying more attention to climate and carbon and paying more attention to sort of diversity, inclusion, um, and reaching out to more people? Uh, that is a really good question. And it's one that I would say I don't 
have a perfect answer to, to be entirely honest. Um, but my partial answer is, um, you know, if you read what Sheil at Better Tomorrow or Matt Harris over at Bain Capital Ventures or Angela over at uh, Andreessen wrote around the turn of the decade about embedded financial services, I think one of the important takeaway points there is that um, finance and financial services um, are a feature and a necessary rail of a lot of products that are not themselves financial. Um, and I wrote about this a little bit in, in Forbes, if I can just plug myself to there, that um, when you talk about financial inclusion, the underlying problems themselves are not necessarily always financial in nature. Um, you might have a problem with lack of employment opportunities. You might have a problem with large student debt incurred uh, because of higher education and higher education being necessary to employment. Um, you might have uh, an issue with medical bills in the U.S. where uh, the majority of personal bankruptcies are declared because of uh, medical reasons. Um, and so uh, coming back to your point on on different metrics to evaluate the industry over time, I think what we'll probably see is that financial services and fintech become blended into more different product categories. Um, so commerce will include more native financial services. Climate products will include more native financial services. Um, healthcare products will include more native financial services. And so um, I do think you'll see uh, products being built for improving people's medical experiences that have financial services as some key component to the product's feature delivery. Um, and so the goal for financial services will start to incorporate more kind of adjacencies. I absolutely love that. And I think what it also does, even from a founder perspective, so in our portfolio, even we have a lot of embedded finance businesses I think some people think, oh, fintech. So the founders obviously came from traditional financial services. They look to build this business. All of a sudden, it, you know, we have a lot of founders that came from, from e-commerce, that came from climate, right? That have all different types of backgrounds, but are now participating in the fintech ecosystem. They're hiring people um, that are, you know, experts in these industries that are now coming into fintech, right? And so as we look at that kind of, again, that cycle, I think that's a really opportunity to bring more people into financial services. And I, I, Nick said it perfectly of like financial services problems aren't necessarily financial services problems, right? And we, we look at a lot of apps of investing your money, right? But how do we get people to invest their money if they're living paycheck to paycheck or they have massive student loan debt, right? So some of these companies are, are solving these problems now, but opening massive market opportunities to get into other um, financial services applications and seeing leaders at the forefront of these businesses that they can relate to. I like that point about leaders that they can relate to. Uh, Richard, do you think we're going to see more pressure on existing businesses and more success from to have sort of more diverse representation in their senior management? Do you think we're going to see maybe more money getting funded towards businesses that pay more attention to, to, to diversity and inclusion. Um, do, you, do, you, do you think that's going to happen? I think, it, I think it's happened to a degree. Um, so certainly it's something I've tried to prioritize at Alec, where when I joined, we had about 11% of the senior team was, was female. We're about 35% currently. So it's, it's moving in the right direction, though clearly is not um, at a 50-50 level. And it, it's something that's part of investment rounds we've had. There's certainly been discussions with investors as part of that as to how do we think about that, um, which I think is, is, 
is positive, right? I, I, I mean, one of the things I, and I, I think gender is great, right? But there are many different dimensions of diversity here. And um, uh, again, uh, things you can easily measure like ethnicity are great as well. And actually we're pretty good on there, about 40% uh, non-white. But um, also how do, what do people, how do people think, right? How, which I think this point being made by Katie and Nick to a degree as well, right? People from different backgrounds, different thought processes is, is almost the most important thing here. Um, so you haven't just got kind of a group think going on as to whatever background you come from, be it you all come out of a similar sort of tech background, if you all come out of a traditional banking background or, or whatever. I, I, I think that diversity of thought um, is actually the most important thing. And uh, yeah, I very much think there is greater awareness of that from investors. Uh, I, th I think the area that I, I don't see enough focus on from investors is, uh, and, and I can see why, to be honest, but is, I guess, the, the classic acronym of ESG. Um, and I, I know why, right? Because let's be honest, a lot of it is um, just, uh, greenwashing is not the right word, right? Because the social and governance in there as well, but there's an awful lot of just people talking nonsense uh, without any real action. Um, and I, I, I do think the best companies will combine actually social, which is really purpose, right, for me. So what's the purpose for your company? Governance, well, hey, FTX has just shown that without good <laughs> governance, you can burn an awful lot of dollars pretty quickly, as of many companies before that. Um, and then environmental, uh, it, it depends what you do. Um, I mean, maybe uh, as a fintech, your only impact on environment is how do you make your code as efficient as possible to use at least uh, CPUs cycles as possible? But I mean, most are more than that. Like for me, right, um, my lending, uh, how do I help energy transition of businesses is a really important question for me. Not one I've, I pretend to have cracked right now, uh, though we were the first people to introduce a, a discount on your, the price of lending for people who are actually improving the energy efficiency of their, their business. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think there's more there. And I, frankly, I don't see enough of, of that when I talk to uh, not my current investors, but I've talked to investors out in the market. Uh, I, I just don't see enough focus on that actually right now. That's a really, really great point. Nick, I, I want to come to you on this one. Do you, do you think we will see a shift away from sort of growth at all costs? I mean, if we think about sort of even even capitalism over the last sort of, you know, 40, 50 years, but certainly, you know, you think about fintech, think about other industries, everyone is just, you know, there's a real focus on growth, but not necessarily at how that growth is achieved. And sometimes, you know, like FTX has obviously blown up spectacularly because people didn't really ask where that apparent growth was coming from. But, you know, there are other industries, you know, Richard, you talked about lending and how you can, you know, you can lend people money that they really can't afford to pay back. You know, there are ways, there are sort of bad ways to grow and good ways to grow. Do you think, Nick, do you think we'll see a shift in, you know, more questioning of how companies are achieving growth and, and what what that growth is? Uh, I really like the way this conversation's evolved. <laughs> uh, I feel like as a philosophy major, I've been training my whole life for this one moment. <laughs> uh, to speculate on the nature of growth and capitalism and good growth versus bad growth. Um, I, I think at the end of the day, it comes back to incentive structures. I think so many of these questions come back to incentive structures. Um, and as long as we have a very um, appealing incentive structure built around growth um, without gradations for how that growth is achieved, you know, we can have, um, you know, sustainable development goals and we can have goals and commitments set up by, you know, COP, but um, 
it's going to be really hard to overcome those incentives. And the incentive structure that we have um, in Western markets and most markets today is built around uh, profitability and growth. And, you know, we have kind of an ingrained consumer mindset built around growth as well. Um, you know, the entire meat advertising industry is built around selling us newer and better versions of the products that we probably already own. Um, and so growth is a, is a really kind of pervasive um, social undercurrent and to get away from it or to find uh, countervailing incentive structures, um, we have to make sure that the alternative is as appealing. So, you know, don't get the new iPhone because your iPhone that you have today works just fine. You don't necessarily need the new one. Um, you know, that's the climate friendly option, but it's not the option that we have any kind of incentive mechanism pushing people towards. And so bringing it back to fintech as well, you know, financial services is an industry like anything else is kind of uh, caught up in this relentless pursuit of growth. And that has a lot of really positive social outcomes. We should be growing the number of people who have access to banking services in, you know, rural areas of emerging markets economies. That has a great positive social output. Um, but all of this is driven by a pursuit for growth that creates a lot of innovation. It creates a lot of progress, um, but is, is, you know, not necessarily um, always positive in isolation. There's kind of counter measures that we need to take in order to ensure that growth is, is commensurate with um, sustainability and um, preservation of, of uh, the, the, the planet in terms of resource intensity and, um, you know, climate change. Um, and so the, this is a very circuitous way of saying, um, I don't know. Um, but I think that there are interesting models that you can look at. Um, Uruguay is, is one where you have a country that has kind of made a broader social emphasis on pivoting away from uh, fossil fuels. And if you um, listen, there's actually a great Daily Insider podcast on this. To, to people talk about it who are just citizens of Uruguay, they talk about kind of the um, recycling mentality that's trickled down from that policy where people um, don't really feel the need to make new purchases if they already have something that works out well for themselves. Um, and people try to reuse and repair rather than just toss out and get the new version of something. So I think in financial services, to, to bring it back to fintech, um, you can have uh, goals for more socially positive outcomes from financial services. You know, take Wanga for an example in the UK, which is basically providing um, super high rate loans that were driving people into bankruptcy um, and into affecting personal credit scores. It was growth at all costs, but not socially positive growth. Um, but it's just about the incentive structures. You need the incentive structures to be built adequately to actually reflect those goals and make people drive towards them. Katie, last word to you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you said that beautifully and way more eloquent than I ever could, hence why I wasn't a philosophy major. Um, but I think just even I can speak for the U.S. is that we have this um, tendency to potentially not trust large, massive corporations. And so when you see kind of some ESG initiatives being rolled out, um, you don't always look at them as face value and, and maybe they may be super impactful. And right. I, I was thinking of, you know, even when I grew up in elementary school, like they were just shoving recycling down our throats all the time. I mean, as kids, we thought we were going to go to jail if we didn't like recycle. And what was happening is that some of those companies, uh, you know, were 
creating horrible food and and drinks and, and and things like that that weren't necessarily good for the population, but it was in it was in packaged and recycled materials that was amazing for the environment, right? You even look at like kind of some of the 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 baby products and and diaper companies that they may be using one type of of material and and really kind of promoting that. And this is very basic in saying that, but then they, they're changing another material, right? And so I think it's very rudimentary kind of way of looking at it, but I think we're ingrained to be like skeptical. Um, and so how can we like get away from that skepticism and to your point, kind of start to measure these things and bring more people in. And to Richard's point, I think something that's exciting about this is that more LPs are talking about this and requiring this and what does that look like and having those conversations holding VCs accountable and therefore holding companies accountable. That's unfortunately all we're going to have time for today. Um, I love this discussion. I think where we've got to is saying we need metrics that encompass both profit and purpose. And that what we've been missing sometimes is that focus on the purpose. And there's a lot of metrics to define that. Thank you all so much for joining me. This has been a really fascinating conversation. Where can people find out a little bit more about you and your companies? Katie. Sure. So we're at anthemus.com and you can find me on Twitter at Dame KDP, D-A-M-E-K-D-P. And Nick. Uh, you can find us at thisweekinfintech.com. And Richard. Uh, so Alica.bank website or LinkedIn, both myself and the company are pretty active on that. And you can find me, Benjamin Ensor, on LinkedIn or at 11ofs.com. Thank you all so much for listening. Uh, if you like what you've heard, please subscribe to our podcast. Um, do leave us a review and let us know what we can do better in the future. Um, if you want to join the conversation, please find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or even email podcasts at 11FS.com. So thank you so much to all of our guests and all of our listeners. And goodbye. Goodbye.